Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. We're going to cover two chapters today, Revelation chapters 15 and 16. I always consider it a privilege and an honor every time I have the opportunity to preach in chapel, and today is no exception. We have been listening to our faculty, for the most part, preach through the book of Revelation for reasons that Dr. Aiken has already explained earlier. I just want to say how much I've enjoyed getting to hear uh, our brothers uh, present Scripture in such a clear and powerful way. And so I've been, I've, I have truly enjoyed uh, this semester getting to hear uh, chapter by chapter uh, our faculty going through the book of Revelation. And thank you so very much. Well, today we are up to chapters 15 and 16. I'm going to read chapter 15 uh, to you. That's not quite as long as it sounds. It's actually the shortest uh, chapter in all of the book of Revelation, and it's only eight verses long. And so please listen as I read from Revelation chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. True, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. And for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed clothed in pure white linen with golden sashes around their chest. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven uh, bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if there's one thing that this, these two chapters are going to teach us, it is that there is a judgment coming. And so it's been my task today to cover two chapters that deal explicitly and extensively with the wrath of God. So it set me to thinking as I'm preparing a message on the wrath of God. 45 years ago, I know that's a long time ago, but 45 years ago I was in college and I was attending a church that had an eight-day conference 
from Sunday to Sunday. And it was magnificent. We heard great preaching both morning and evening. And the end of the uh, conference was on a Sunday. And the special preacher, the special speaker that day, was a Southern Baptist evangelist named uh, J. Harold Smith. Now, <clears throat> J. Harold Smith preached that morning, and he did a good job. And as we were about to dismiss, the pastor asked him in front of everyone, he said, Dr. Smith, I know you are planning on preaching something else, but tonight, will you preach God's three deadlines? Well, there was just this buzz that went out over the congregation. I had no idea what was going on. Well, it turns out that that sermon, God's Three Deadlines, was a very famous sermon that, that Dr. Smith preached. And so I came back that night for the Sunday night service, and it was a sanctuary that would seat a little over 3,000, and it was packed. I mean, you couldn't put another person in that building. They had chairs down the aisles so that everyone could sit to hear Dr. Smith preach that sermon, God's Three Deadlines. You say, well, what was it like? What was the sermon like? Well, <clears throat> it was sensational. Um, it was lurid. Exegetically, it was questionable and maybe indefensible. Uh, it was also spellbinding. Everyone in the room listened to every word. The atmosphere was electric. And they didn't get to give an invitation because by the time he finished, people were pouring to the front. In fact, you couldn't get to the front. The aisles were filled. And it was an extraordinary service that I have never forgotten that I was there and I heard him preach. I thought of other famous sermons about the coming judgment of God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is noted for many things, but one of the things for which he's noted is a very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, evidently, he preached it as a substitute preacher at a church in the town of Enfield, Massachusetts. And the church there was not, not particularly known for being very spiritual. But as Edwards preached this sermon, he used such vivid imagery to make his point. Here's an excerpt. You can see it on the screen there. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. Now, Edwards started the sermon, but he didn't get to finish it. According to Jess Moody, he said, such was the impact of his preaching that the people listening shrieked and cried out, and the crying and weeping became so loud that Edwards was forced to discontinue the sermon. Instead, the pastors went down among the people and prayed with them in groups. And many came to saving knowledge of Christ in that day. And so that's a second sermon. There's a third sermon that came to mind. And that was the one preached by the famous Southern Baptist pastor, 
uh, R.G. Lee. R.G. Lee preached a sermon entitled Payday Someday. And he was famous for preaching it. You say, how famous was he for preaching it? He preached it no less than 1,200 times. Now, some of the most famous sermons ever preached are about the coming judgment of God. Now, why would preachers preach such messages? Well, it's because there are just read to you here in chapters 15 and we're going to see in chapter is a wrath of God is a real mean for you and me here in this chapel service this morning well I think it means that we need to understand that we are the instruments that God has chosen. We are the vessels that God has chosen. We are the messengers that God has chosen to warn the world that judgment is coming. And if we don't warn them, then who will? Let's take a look at the context of Revelation 15 and 16. The middle part of the book of Revelation is telling us that there is a judgment coming and it presents these, this judgment as three rounds of judgment presented in three sets of seven. The first set of seven are, is the seven seals that are presented to us in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. The seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are presented to us in chapters 8 through 11. There are certain interludes in between these judgments, but the, seven, the three sets of seven are primary. And so the third set of seven are the seven bowls that we are looking at today in chapters 15 and 16. So what are we to think about these three sets of seven that... Uh, are, are presented to us. Are we to understand them sequentially, that one happens, then the second happens, and then the third set happens? Or are they somehow the, the same set of judgments being told three different ways or in three different timings? I'm not sure. I'm not sure one way or the other. Regardless, one thing that comes through that everybody agrees about is that they are presented with greater magnitude. Each set of seven presents greater vehemence and greater ferocity. And so we see the context of this third set of seven is within the context of the coming judgment of God. So what is the teaching of Revelation chapters 15 and 16? Well, chapter 15 that we just read gives us the heavenly prelude. It sets up for what's going to happen. We see in verse 1, the seven angels with the seven plagues. And then in verse 2, we see that, they are, that it's happening in a sea of glass. And they are singing, in verse 3 and 4, the songs of Moses and of the Lamb. And then the chapter ends with a scene of the glorious sanctuary in verses 5 through 8. So that's the setup. That's the prelude for what happens in chapter 16. If chapter 15 is the heavenly prelude, chapter 16 is the earthly onslaught. 
And in chapter 16, we have where the seven plagues are then poured out. The first plague is a plague of painful, terrible sores in verses 1 and 2. The second plague is a plague upon all of the salt water in which the sea is turned to blood, and that's in verse 3. And what happened to the salt water then happens to the fresh water in the next plague, the third plague, the fresh water is turned to blood in verses 4 through 7. The fourth plague is a plague of scorching heat, and we see that in verses 8 and 9. The fifth plague is a plague of painful darkness. Now, how is it that the darkness is painful? Is it physical? Is it psychological and mental? The text doesn't really say, but it says that they are in such pain that they chew and, and, and gnaw their tongues for pain, even though they still curse God and will not repent. Then the sixth plague is the gathering of the armies. We have where the Euphrates River is dried up. We see where unclean spirits are presented as frogs, and we'll talk about why that is significant here in a minute. But all of the armies are then gathered together in the place called Armageddon. And that's in verses 12 through 16. Finally, we come to the seventh plague, and that is worldwide catastrophes. Have you ever attended a 4th of July fireworks show in which they have one firework after another, and it's spectacular until they come to the grand finale? And in the grand finale, they show all of the fireworks that you saw before together, and it's just enormous. It's just overwhelming. Well, that's the seventh plague. The seventh plague has everything. Everything from earthquakes that destroy all of the cities of the world and has all of the mountains collapse and the islands and the seas sink into the ocean and there are hailstones throughout the world that then fall. Everything that could happen does happen in this seventh plague. Wow. Wow. So this is the context that's the teaching. Now, what should we, here in the chapel service of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, take from this? Well, I've got just five takeaways, and then I'm going to be done. First, God's wrath is not forever, but it is real. That's the point that this chapter and the next chapter makes repeatedly. Look at verse 1, and it says at the end of the verse, For with these plagues, for with them, the wrath of God is finished. You'll notice the word full are finished. This is the, the wrath of God in its completeness and its finality. It comes through over and over. Again, look down at verse 7 of chapter 15. It talks about how one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels the seven bowls that are full of the wrath of God. Notice in verse 8, no one could enter into the sanctuary until the seven plagues were finished. And then we go into chapter 16 and verse 1. And it says that with a loud voice they heard, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And then again, look down at verse 17. As this is all going on, it says in verse 17, the angel says, it is 
done. Then in verse 19, it says that as they are experiencing these wrath, this wrath and these judgments, that the people of Babylon are having to drink the grapes of wrath. Notice what it says in verse 19. It says there, He made her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so, if there's one thing we're supposed to take away from these chapters, it is that the wrath of God, it may not be forever, but it's a real thing. Wrath is not an eternal attribute of God. And I'm thankful for that. But holiness is. Holiness is an eternal attribute of God. And wrath is the only proper response when a holy God comes in contact with human wickedness. And so the first thing we're to see is that God's wrath is not forever, but it is real. Second, deliverance for the people of God will be much like the deliverance of the Exodus. Chapters 15 and 16 are intended to remind us of the book of Exodus. Over and over again, it has things that allude to the book of Exodus. For example, the glassy sea. What's, you say, what's that about? Well, the early rabbis taught that whenever the Red Sea parted for the children of Israel, it stood on edge and the ocean, the Red Sea, looked like glass. And then again, you have the smoke of God's, uh, of God's presence, of, of how, how fearful and awesome it was. Well, you see that smoke in chapter 15. And then you have the tabernacle of testimony, which is exactly the way that the book of Exodus ends uh, also. They have the tabernacle of testimony. And whenever they're delivered through the Red Sea, what do they sing? Well, they sing the song of Moses in the book of Exodus. And what do they sing in chapter 15? The song of Moses and of the Lamb. Then we come into the, the, the plagues in chapter 16. And they can't help but remind us of the ten plagues that the Egyptians experienced. You have the, the painful sores. You have the frogs. You have the darkness. Uh, you, have, uh, 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 you go through all of the various ones. And even the, the way that they responded is much the way Pharaoh did. They hardened their hearts. They refused to repent. They cursed God instead of turning to his mercy. And so all of this is intended to remind us of what it was like for the children of Israel when they were delivered in the book of Exodus. And what is the takeaway from this? And that is that deliverance, what is deliverance for the people of God, is disastrous for others. I want Jesus to come back. I pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray, Maranatha. I, I'm like Paul where he says, looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want Jesus to come back. I'm disappointed he didn't come back yesterday. But we also have to remember what will be good and glorious for us will not be for those who are not ready. Which brings us to the third point. Is this right? And the point is, God's wrath may be severe, but it is appropriate. Now, this is an important point because the book of Revelation, the one thing we can say about the book of Revelation is that it operates in many ways as a theodicy a justification of the ways of God to us. 
See, because one of the things that Revelation teaches is that one of these days, everything is going to be made right. Curious time. We believe, humanity believes, that we are in a position to decide what is good enough for us. Humanity, we believe, that we can put God on trial. See, this point called God in the dock. Now, to understand the experience, you've got to understand just a little bit about British courtrooms in order to he's making. In a British courtroom, the judge, the desk that he has, this is called the bench. So the judge sits on the bench, and the person that's accused the one who's on trial, he's in a space or a place called the dock. And that's where the accused would stand trial. And so his point was that we have the nerve to put God on trial. And so he says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as an accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the he, humanity, is the judge. God is in the dock. He, humanity, is a quite a kindly judge. God have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, disease. Yeah, we're quite ready to listen to it. The trial acquittal, but the important thing to remember, to know, is that man is on the bench is in the dock. So modern humanity believes that it is high ground, believes that we are in a position to pass judgment on God. This text lets us know that this is a very dangerous way to think. Because look at chapter 16, verses 5, 6, and 7. God's justice is repeatedly affirmed. Notice what it says in chapter 16 and verse 5. What does the angel say? As they pour out the wrath of God upon the earth, just are you, O Holy One, who have brought these judgments. In other words, Lord, you're right. You're doing the right thing. You are justified in these actions. Look again at verse 6 as he talks about giving them the punishment. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserved. So is God fair? Yes. He's not just just. I'll go even further and say he's fair. Because the text says he's right. He's vindicated. That's what the angels say. Now, how does the congregation respond in verse 7? Look at verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In other words, from the scope of eternity, from the heavenly perspective, being able to see the whole picture from beginning to end, all the redeemed will look down as they see what's going on and they will say, you know, he's right. This is right. This is exactly what ought to happen. God's not being mean. God's not being cruel. God's not being unfair. 
Everything he's doing is just and right and true. So if there's one thing this text wants to get across to us is that God's wrath may be severe, but it is appropriate. And so that's the third thing. The fourth thing I want to get across is that this text teaches that punishment does not produce repentance. Only grace does. Notice what it says in verses 8 through 11. It is, the imagery here is shocking. Because it talks about people being covered with terrible sores and being in awful agony. It's gruesome. And they, how much pain are they in? So much that they're chewing their tongues. But they're still cursing God. They're not repenting. And it, as I said, as I read these verses, it made me go back in my mind to that sermon I heard J. Harold Smith preach. By the way, there are several versions of it on YouTube. Watch it at your own risk. If you're easily triggered, fair warning. Because Smith told some stories that were so over the top. And he told them in explicit detail. And they were grotesque, and they were even gory. I thought about it as I, as I listened to the sermon again on YouTube. I thought, how would modern congregations 50 years later respond to that? I think that they would, I think they would head for the doors. I don't think they would stay to hear what he had to say. Yeah, but what are we supposed to do with these verses? These verses are very tough. I would not want to see... Uh, a visual image of these verses. Let's remember something. The reason these verses are given to us, they are to serve as a warning, and warnings are always offers of grace. Let's remember, Sodom received no warning. God looked down, examined them, and then destroyed them. No warning. Whereas the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah got a 40-day warning. 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And Nineveh took advantage of that. They repented and God showed them mercy. Why are these chapters in the Bible? Warnings are instruments of grace. They're intended to warn us to flee from the wrath to come. We sing amazing grace. Do you remember how the second verse goes? Read, look at how the second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And so when we receive passages like these and they scare us to death, thank God for His grace that He has shown us what we should fear. What is the solution? What is the resolution to this situation? Well, the, it says, look at the last part of, the, of what the verse says. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and what's going to give me relief? And grace my fears relieved." Punishment does not produce repentance, but grace can. And so what are we to do? And this is how I'll finish. We are the messengers that God has chosen to give the warning. You and I. That's why Dr. Aiken has us going through the book of Revelation. That's why the Lord in His providence has us in chapel this morning. This is why 
we as the redeemed, professing Christians, are reading these chapters. It's so that we might be reminded we have to warn people. In 2005, Penny and I were living in New Orleans, and our son and daughter were finally out of the home for the very first week of, of our lives. Uh, they were both in college. Allison was at Loyola. Matt was at UNO. We had, there it was, the end of August. We put them in their respective uh, schools. Uh, you say, what, you know, what's it like to be an empty nester? Oh, it's terrible for about 24 hours. And, and then, then <clears throat> uh, the semester began. I was teaching at New Orleans, and it was a magnificent semester. Um, we, Penny and I, had just moved into our new home in, the, in less than, than 18 months. We had new furniture in this new home. We were empty nesters, and I was teaching this, it, this, the class was, was great. It was going to be a magnificent semester. So that first week, I can remember going to the administrative council meeting. We were talking about, man, this looks great. What a, what a, what a great start. And so that Friday, I took my sweetheart out for a date, dinner and a movie. I can still remember the restaurant. I can still remember the movie. Because as we were leaving, I saw a couple other faculty members and their wives at the restaurant. And so I went over to ask them what they're doing. They said, well, what we're doing is we're putting up plywood over our windows. I said, what do you mean? Well, Katrina, you know how it said it was supposed to meet, miss us? It's changed its course, and now we're right in the middle of the cone of probability. So that was Friday night. I get up early Saturday morning, and I open up the Times-Picayune, and there it tells about what it will be like if we get the big one. And he said, you can expect four to ten feet of water in your house. And then I turn on the, 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 my computer screen. I go to the National Weather Association, and there it shows. We're in the cone of probability. And the mayor says, get out. Get out now. Don't wait. And so we loaded up uh, Matt and Allison and whatever else we can throw in one car, uh, and uh, we, uh, they did something that they've never done in the history of the interstate highway system. They did what they called the contraflow. They had all of the lanes going out. And so for the very first time, as we get on Interstate 55 and all four lanes are now going out, we decided, let's drive the wrong way. Let's go over and never done that before. You say, what's it like? Well, it's kind of cool. It's really kind of cool. We drove all the way from New Orleans to Jackson, Mississippi on the wrong side of the road and there were just thousands and thousands and thousands of us getting out. Well, <clears throat> there were lots who didn't. Go to the next slide. I think our house is somewhere in that picture. As the flood came, the storm came, the tens of thousands who stayed found themselves in terrible duress, and over a thousand of them drowned. Now, how is it that Penny, Matt, and Allison, and I were able to get out? It's because we were warned. Someone told us. And we were able to flee from the catastrophe to come. Folks, judgment is coming. The wrath of God is real. If we don't 
warn them. If you and I, the people in this room, if we don't warn them, who's going to do it? Who will? Now, I don't want to finish on this note because it's not the way the book of Revelation finishes. Wrath is not the final word. The book of Revelation opens with a magnificent vision of the Son of God, the resurrected Christ. It ends with God coming down to man and the kingdom of God here on earth and the tabernacle of God dwells with man. So the Bible tells us that Christ is alive and that at the end, it will, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But in between, folks, before the final time comes, the wrath of God is real and judgment is coming. Father in heaven, somehow this message needs to get through to us in such a way that we will have the courage, the boldness, and the conviction to let every friend know, to talk to all with an urgency that there is a catastrophe coming and that we will tell them about that is a deliverance and his name is Jesus. Give us that grace and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.